Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the Cool Hand Grace Podcast. Well, we're back again, and we're ready to look into another biblical passage, and we're going to look at Hebrews 11 this time with the goal uh, being to gain insight and application from God's Word that can encourage us in our day-to-day lives. I'm Pastor Kurt Witzig, and on behalf of the College Ministry at Duluth Bible Church, welcome. What we believe is really important. Our beliefs are always informed by something, and those beliefs then go on to shape our actions. So doing flows out of our believing When our beliefs are shaped by God, then our doing is consistent with him. And that becomes a quality life. So our faith, and more exactly the object of our faith, is of utmost importance. And it is the subject of Hebrews chapter 11. Last time we looked at faith and how verse 1 described it. In Hebrews 11.1 we read, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. The New American Standard says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is being persuaded so as to trust, as we like to define it. So it means to trust or rely on somebody or something after being persuaded that it or they are worthy of your trust. Biblical faith makes God, obviously, the divine persuader and the divine object of our faith. And he's actively persuading us about who he is and the truth that he speaks. Our faith then is an object. It has an object. It's God. And he is the author of our salvation. He's the promise-keeping, faithful Jehovah God, one in whom we have placed our confidence in. So an important thing to note about faith is the value of one's faith lies in the object of that faith. You see, faith did not die on the cross. Faith did not resurrect on the third day. Faith did not ascend into heaven. Faith does not sit at the right hand of God. Faith is not making intercession for you and I. Faith does not do any of that. But Jesus does. He does all of that. And he died for us and he has risen again. So our faith is in Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. For example, it's said of believers in Christ, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're justified by faith. It means legally declared righteous. By who? By God. And how did that happen? By faith. Faith in what? Jesus Christ, our Lord. So, realize it is impossible to have righteousness before God without Jesus. Now, the writer of Hebrews is writing to encourage his readers how faith, uh, uh, first by reminding them how faith anticipates all that God has said about their future, stirring up their hope and motivating them to keep on keeping on uh, via this faith. We have uh, the conviction of things not seen. We are persuaded. We are, have the hope of um, the substance of things that are hoped for. And so the writer has described that last time. We saw that in Hebrews verse 11, 1, and we talked about how uh, those things not seen, the things hoped for, uh, it includes all those future things that are related to end times, like a rapture, 
the bodily resurrection, the reunion with other believers, our personal appearance before the Lord at the judgment seat, our worship in heaven, our Armageddon and his mighty return to the earth and the millennial kingdom and how he's the king of kings and we know there's a new heavens and new earth. And we look forward to all that and faith then is the substance of those things hoped for. It's the assurance of that and the conviction of these things that are not seen. And we have uh, assurance and confidence. So we saw this last time, this hope, confidence, this anticipation, assurance. It can obviously then apply to those future things, but it can apply to our life before we die as well, before we are raptured. Our progressive sanctification here on this earth, our spiritual maturity here in our days on this earth, and our spiritual growth to have a closer walk with him, why can we not also have that same kind of confidence and, and, and assurance of those things that are hoped for? After all, Philippians 1.6, as we saw last time, reminded us that we are confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And that's what God is up to. He's always at work. He's always active. And he's desiring to accomplish his will in us and through us as our faith then anticipates this working and this outcome in our lives. Oh, I know we can say though, but I, I look at myself, I'm not consistent. I don't always yield. I, I'm often a failure and I, I mess it up and it never seems to be consistent or whatever. And this is really just focusing on yourself. And therefore you have faith, yes, but the object of your faith is yourself and your inability and your unworthiness. But God is not going to be persuaded by you <laughs> and how you view yourself. God is waiting to convince us about him and how to view him and then ourselves in him. So that negative talk loop that we often just allow to dominate is just a big exercise in faith in the wrong object, looking at the wrong thing, viewing yourself as you see it, not as God says it is. And so this wrong object leaves us with not really expecting, not really hoping or anticipating, with no assurance, future things on this earth, though we do think of things, uh, have assurance of things after we die, which is good. But why not in our sanctification as well? See, the remedy then is to dial in on the one object of faith that delivers and is powerful and who is for us, God. And the fact of our union with him and the fact that we are in Christ. So friends, when we look at our circumstances or our frailties, we feel frustrated or hopeless and accept the belief then that we can never really genuinely enjoy life or progress or grow and, until circumstances change. And so we're anchored to our negativity. When we allow it to be the case, we're stuck. We're tied to a stake graciously, God wants to set us free. You know, it reminds me of the old story of the elephant and the rope. You know, it's said that when uh, circus elephants, anyway, when they're baby, babies, they're small, it seems um, they could be traditionally trained by tying one of their front legs to a stake in the ground. The stake isn't even that uh, deep in, or the rope itself isn't even that significant, but it's enough, it's plenty for the elephant as a baby. But because the elephants are small, uh, then this only thin rope is required, and they will struggle they'll pull a little bit but eventually they realize they can't break that rope or they can't get that stake out and they give up but then they grow up and they grow fast and of course the rope just keeps getting they adjust it to, to the size of the leg but same rope same stake and before long these cute little baby elephants are lumbering giant elephants but here's the thing that same thin rope is all that's needed to keep them secured 
because they think the rope can still hold them. They're persuaded, and so they never try to break free. So what they're lacking is truth. They're lacking reality and awareness of real reality. And so they're in bondage. And you know, I love what Jesus says in John 8. He says, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. You see, we get real freedom in Christ by way of truth and God's liberating perspectives and truths and his ways. And we can be persuaded in what he says and the reality he explains. And by believing that so that we trust that, we have freedom. We understand then who we are. The question is not what now is not to rather what am I, but what is Christ? It's not, hey, I'm trapped, but I'm free instead in him. I'm wholly identified in him. I'm thoroughly accepted in him. I cannot even be rejected because I am in him, and he will never be rejected. So I am in him. I can't become out of him. I have eternal life. I will never perish, and nothing separates me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, my Lord. And you could say, he loves me, and I am his, and he is able to deliver me from wrong thoughts, from wrong ideas and truths, from that negative loop which is not based on his reality. And I'm set free by truth, and how I can see that, and how God really is for me, and how he is for us. And this, then, is the seedbed of our hope, even on this side of eternity. Well, after reminding them of this in verse 1, how faith anticipates things in the future, he spends the rest of the chapter wanting to encourage them, his readers, in their faith by looking in the past. So having connected his readers, as we said before in chapter 10, verse 39, the last verse there, saying, we are of those who believe, we are those who are, are of faith, even though we're in the midst of really difficult times, he says we're stating this hope and assurance that goes with that faith. And now he wants to connect them to those who had gone before them in the past. So we come to Hebrews 11, verse 2, which says, For by it, by faith, the elders obtained a good testimony. And the elders are those uh, faithful Jews and believers that have gone before them. And they've obtained a good testimony, a good report. And they obtained it, obviously, then by God. And they did so by faith. Those who had gone before, these Hebrew Christians, they obtained this approval, and it could even read, because they trusted in God, or because of their faith, the elders obtained this relational approval that now is, comes out of their faith and is from God, and they then understand him in a better way and trust him in a personal way. Well, this verse, verse, verse 2 acts like a bookend for the rest of chapter 11. If you notice at the end of the chapter, we see in verse 39 that these, all of these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. Yet, they're going to receive it. But they see in verse 2, those who have gone before us, the elders obtained a good testimony. Verse 39, all of these have obtained a good testimony. As between verse 2 and 39, we have what we call the Hall of Fame of Faith, where the writer goes through a number of uh, people from in, in the Old Testament Bible and how they enjoyed victory and had many positive things and even went through some very difficult times, all of it by faith. And sandwiched in between these two bookends are these accounts of these believers who had gone long before. In fact, the writer's going to start, as we'll see today, at the very beginning with creation. <clears throat> He's then going to go chronologically from Abel to Enoch to Noah, 
Then he's going to have a considerable space given over to Abraham and Sarah, and then Isaac and Jacob after them. And then the next section is a considerable space given over to Moses and those related to the possession of the promised land. And then the last section of Hebrews 11, he's going to mention briefly many, many of them, some named and many, uh, many named and some unnamed who were enabled by heroic, heroic acts and, uh, and they underwent even extreme persecution. So let's look at how he starts in Hebrews 11.3 when he wants us to look at the creation. He says, By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. And again, this starts with the phrase, by faith. This phrase is going to appear 19 times from chapter 1038 through chapter 1140. That's a strong repetition, and that therefore focuses our attention of the writer's desire for us to live by faith and the value of doing that. So it's, beyond, it's not beyond the grasp of any one of us. It's not something that's not a, something we could ever hope for. Nope, it's simple faith. It's the full possibility for all of us especially when you consider how God is actively persuading us. So we just want to expose ourselves to God's truth and allow his spirit to persuade us so that we can step out and say, I am convinced and I believe, and then step accordingly. Well, this is how we approach how we then understand how the creation came about. You see, faith then is linked to our thinking process. So again, we see that faith is not static. There is movement. Because in our thinking, we're moving, and God is a God of movement and life and vitality. So we understand then how the worlds were set in order by the word of God. And they were spoken into existence. Let there be light, and there was light, Genesis tells us. Let the earth bring forth grass, and it was so, and so on. And what is the result? The things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. The things we see that were made are made by something we do not see. The universe was created by the word of God, the eternal and spirit form God. What is not seen is more real than what is seen, is what by faith we understand. Because what is seen did not exist until what cannot be seen spoke it into existence. There's a dimension outside this seen dimension that is much more than this dimension and superior to it. So our life does not consist of just what the five senses see and taste and smell, etc. So let this shape our view of everything around us. Now the doctrine stating what verse 3 just declared is called ex nihilo. It comes from the Latin which means for out of nothing. So God He didn't use any pre-existing materials to create the visible creation. He spoke into existence everything out of nothing. Reminds me of the old the joke of some scientists that had thought they were so smart and they'd accomplished so much, and they said, "Hey, God, I just we just want to let you know that we don't need you anymore. We can create and we can design, and we're able to just take it from here." And uh, they even proposed a little contest, a little creation contest. And God said, "Okay, let's create a world." And uh, the men started to gather up, the scientists, the men and women gathered up some dirt to start forming. And, and God said, wait a minute, get your own dirt. 
And that's the idea of ex nihilo. We, 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 God started with nothing. He spoke everything into existence. This truth is brought home in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, where Paul says, Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, God's attributes, are clearly seen. Being understood, there's that word there, understood by the things that are made. That's us. Even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. So God's invisible attributes are clearly seen in the visible world. We see, his, we see design and structure. We see order. We see uh, uh, um, geophysical laws like gravity and so forth. And we see his power and his beauty and the variety which he created. And we can see that this is very good. And by faith, we understand how this all came to be. Through the word of God, the full credit is to God. Everything is sourced with him. <clears throat> If we were to read on in Romans 1, we'd see how many people choose instead to suppress this truth and hold it back and source all that we see and uh, the origins to it to natural causes only, leaving God out, leaving the question that remains unanswered. Well, if that's true, where did the dirt come from? Where did the very first matter come from that we see? If there is no God, if everything is, comes into you know, through natural means, where does matter even begin? And again, there's no answer ever given to that question. It leaves us with just faith in eternal matter. If I leave God out, I have a world where I have, I can go back through an evolutionary process, however I want to explain that, but ultimately I have faith in an eternal matter. The Bible tells us, though, it all came to be and come to existence from God, who spoke it into existence, so I don't need eternal matter, but I need an eternal God. So that then puts our faith in an eternal God, who has all sorts of attributes that we see on display throughout history in the Word of God, and we see them on display in the universe that he created. So that's the choice. Faith in an object, eternal, lifeless matter, or an eternal living God. Hebrews 11.3 says, By faith we then understand how the worlds were framed by the word of this living, eternal God. And then we read his account, which means we now have faith in this God, and they're all on display, and we have faith in a person, not even just a set of facts, but in a living God. And yes, this gets real personal, because this living, eternal God is relational. He's a living, dynamic, amazing, personal entity who created you, and now desires contact with you, a relationship with you. And the world around us points us to him and draws us toward him where he continues to want to persuade us with that creation and even more with his specific words. So we see the awesome, all-powerful Elohim, strong God that is used in the word for God that is used in Genesis 1, become the noble, relational, faithful Lord God, Lord being Jehovah, that we see that name being used in Genesis 2. He creates and then in chapter 2, he relates to the people that is you and I. The point in Hebrews 11 for us to consider then, the writer is saying, is note how the future things are made sure by faith in verse 1, even as past things like, say, creation here are taken by faith. Faith looks forward to the teacher and the, the future, rather, and the things anticipated and hoped for. So keep moving toward him in your heart, recognizing how God has always been faithful and active even as we look backwards at the history that has already transpired. <clears throat> well, moving from the creation account, we move to Hebrews 11, chapter 4, 
chapter 11, verse 4, which reads, By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it, he being dead, still speaks. So now we see the first individual of many individuals that will be coming in our chapter. And we're moving from creation account to now these first two human beings that were born. And what do we know from Hebrews 11.4? We see that both Cain and Abel make an offering to the Lord. We see that Abel's sacrifice was by faith. In other words, he was convinced and trusting in something. We see Abel's sacrifice was more excellent in comparison, obviously, to Cain's. We see Abel obtained witness that he was righteous. That's an adjective. That's describing him. We see that God is speaking well of Abel's gifts with approval. And then we read that Abel's faith still speaks today. In this sense, we'll see it's a cry for, for justice. Now, the full story of Cain and Abel and their offerings is found in Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. So we can look there. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, right after the creation of Adam and Eve and then the fall in the garden and how God says some things will be true of the serpent and then of the woman and then of the man, um, then he makes coats of skins for them and he drives them out of the garden. And then we see in chapter 4, verse 1, that <clears throat> now Adam knew his wife, knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. We see she has acquired a man from the Lord. She bore, uh, there's the verb structure there, she bore Cain. And there's a object, direct object marker for Cain. She bore, that's the verb, she bore Cain. Now we see that after she bore Cain, she then obtained, excuse me, she then um, said, I have acquired or I have gotten a man from the Lord. Now here, uh, there's a stunning statement of faith here. We won't look at it in detail, but this is fulfilling the promise God made in Genesis 3.15 when he promised that her seed would come and crush the serpent's seed. There would be an ultimate conqueror and victor who would, to, to, who would eliminate the serpent. So that's a promise. That's a promise of a redeemer. We see that's the first thread of, this, of the gospel message as it's going to unfold in Genesis. And this means that Eve recognized that her seed was that going to be that conqueror. That's what she thought. She thought, I have acquired or gotten a man from the Lord. Now, the word from is not in the Hebrew. It's, or it's, it's not going to be translated there. It's literally, I have, I have gotten, I have acquired a man, the Lord. And it's the same kind of structural setup uh, in, the, in the Hebrew as I have bore Cain, uh, bore in the object Cain, I have acquired a man, and this is a, the man is the Lord. So that's the, what she's saying here is she's recognizing that her seed would not only come from the Lord, but would be the Lord himself. She's understanding something about the incarnation already here and our understanding of um, how the seed is going to be a God-man. Because she's emphasizing, he, I've gotten a man in verse 1, but also now he's the Lord. Incredible. This unfolds in chapter 4, verse 1. Well, going on, chapter 4, verse 2, she then bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep. Cain was a teller of the ground. So what we see as um, the Hebrew literally reads at the end of days, uh, we're going to see they're going to, at a process of time, they're going to come uh, before the Lord. Verse 3, it says, And in the process of time, it came to pass 
that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground of the Lord, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. So in the process of time, the Hebrew would literally read at the end of days, meaning like at a specific or appointed time. So already this early in human history, there's this fixed time in which offerings were to be offered. And it was clearly a regularly prescribed time. This being so, uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum actually says this is a regularly prescribed time. This being so, this means that this was not the first time sacrifices were offered or even the first time Cain offered a sacrifice. But there's a specific time here that is called attention to because something's going to be different. As for the offerings, what in the context informs us uh, of what is to come or how they were to come on what basis? Well, we go just four verses earlier from chapter 4, and we see the story of the counts of skin in Genesis 3.21. This is where Adam and Eve, after their fall and after God had dealt out some consequences, it says God made tunics of skin and clothed them. So he made coats of skin for them. That means he just requires the taking of the life of an animal and then providing a covering that is acceptable before God. And this would replace the fig leaves which they had tried to make and were not an acceptable covering. So here's the concept of innocent life being shed for the guilty sinner. And it's done so to provide a covering that's acceptable before the Lord. This is already established and right there in Genesis chapter 3. And that concept will be carried out through the substitutionary sacrifices throughout the entire Old Testament. So imagine the horror for Adam and Eve as God carries this out right in front of them. The impact of their sin and their guilt is now hitting them hard as they see an animal sacrifice. And yet, such relief as well, because now they have this provision of God, a gracious God, who provides for them these coats of skin so they can have continued access to the Lord and relationship with him through this proper covering and provision that God has had and their acceptance that's found in it. And surely this this would have been uh, communicated by Adam and Eve to their children and, and from then on. So now in Genesis 4, we see their children approaching God through offering, which is a worship. They're coming to offer to God and acknowledge his worship. This is what uh, Henry Morris says in his Genesis book, The Genesis Record. He says, the entire occurrence can only be really understood in the context of an original revelation by God regarding the necessity of substitutionary sacrifice as a prerequisite to approach God. Such revelation was most likely given at the time God provided coats of skins for Adam and Eve and then had to banish them from his presence, providing, however, this specific means by which they could still commune with him at certain times on the basis of a similar sacrifice. And Adam and Eve would certainly have instructed their children to do this. For a long time, they heeded and followed it. As Henry Morris as well says, this was probably not the first time, but this was now, we read in Genesis 4, that something's going to be different. You see, Cain, he brings an offering of the cursed ground. Genesis 3.17, remember God said to Adam, the ground is cursed because of you. So when Cain comes with his fruits, there is no recognition of a sacrifice life given. There is no recognition of, of the need for that. In fact, he's coming with the fruit of something that has an, its origins that is cursed. Abel brings an offering via the taking of innocent life that was substituting the innocent for the guilty, of this concept starting with the coats of skin. And the sacrifice 
is connected to each brother. It says that Abel was a um, that Cain brought an offering, brought an offering, um, and Abel brought his offering. And the Lord accepted, respected Abel and his offering, but He did not not respect Cain and his offering. In Genesis four five. So in other words, the person and the offering are linked and connected. <clears throat> so why is there not approval for Cain and there is approval for Abel? Well, we see that Cain comes with offerings and fruits from the ground, and the sacrifice is now connected to him as identified by his works. It may have seemed reasonable to Cain that he certainly may have reasoned in the process of time here that his approach now, he's going to try this. He felt justified in doing so, that this is something that God would certainly be pleased with. Uh, he's going to do his best and provide the best. Maybe he did some cross-pollination and uh, cross-geneticist things and brought really beautiful and fragrant uh, fruits, etc. But his thinking and his ways, God's ways are not our ways. We know that. His thoughts are not our thoughts. They're much higher. As Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 says. So God's thoughts and God's ways are different than man's ways, than Cain's ways, than his approach here. And faith always agrees with God and his thoughts and his teaching and what, and faith then believes. So we don't read that Cain came by faith because that's by implication. When Abel did, the contrast is Cain did not. Abel's sacrifice is done by faith, so Cain's is not. Cain has other thoughts, different ways, and he reasons that his fruits are acceptable. He has good intentions. He has a right desire in his heart. He wants to please God, perhaps. He has his works, but God is not going to, he's not going to, Cain rather is not coming according to God's ways. He's coming according to Cain's way. And this is the path of what we say, the path of good works, seeking to gain God's approval on the merits of what we do, our sincere efforts, our spiritual hustle, but it's not on the basis of a substitute or through the payment of the blood sacrifice that is seen in that significance of that substitute. This is an act of worship again, these two boys coming before the Lord, these two young men, and they're bowing before God, so to speak, praising him, recognizing his worthiness, humbly in his presence. John 4 reminds us that worship must be in spirit and in truth. And truth on display with the coats of skin is already there, the proper covering, the proper access to God through an innocent life shed on your behalf. This is how sin is dealt with. Romans tells us the penalty of sin is death. It is not the fruits from the ground. The ground is cursed. So this is a hint of Abel's faith even. He came with how many sheep? How many? One. He could have out of fear thought, oh, I'm going to bring my whole flock. I'm going to sacrifice them all just to be safe and make sure it's covered. But he came with only one because it was enough. Because Abel understood by faith that whole significance and illustration that was set forth through the coats of skin and Adam and Eve passing this on. Hebrews chapter 4, we read, the Lord respected, uh, Hebrews 11 rather, verse 4, uh, the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And so we see the verdict. Abel is met with approval, a little applause, and a giant yes. Cain, however, is not. Respected means to react, react favorably to, to consider as right. So just imagine we see this yes and no, and this is in front of the whole world. <laughs> really, I think of that. There's just Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve, a few others, uh, per, you know, in, in front of everyone. Yes is said to Abel. No, there's not an acceptance before Cain of that sacrifice. So we have approval and rejection. 
but not of Cain as a person, but of his approach and worship, his thinking, it was not right. He was trusting his own efforts and works instead of the way that God had instructed them. So this results in Cain becoming very angry. Notice his external countenance is even impacted. You can just see it on his face. He was not approved, and that hurts. We all crave this, don't we? We desperately desire approval. Sometimes we'll do things we know are wrong or compromise our values or manipulate or hustle, work hard or whatever, just to be seen favorably. And our sin nature, we know, is very self-oriented. It says, me first. It's like put up a finger in front of you or run your other finger around it, a circle around it. Everything revolves around us when we're in the midst of our sin nature thinking. And so we can become really irritable and oh, so angry and negative at anything that doesn't go our way or where we might be seen as less than favorable or we're not getting the approval we think we deserve. And our emotions then get involved, and even our physical appearance is impacted, and we can become really miserable. But thankfully, God never leaves us there. He's pursuing, remember? He loves us. And we see him seeking out Cain, wanting to persuade him. Because after we see Cain was angry and his countenance fell, and he was 11, and Genesis 4 or 5 here, um, so the Lord said to Cain in verse 6, Why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? Starts with some rhetorical questions. If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not well, sin lies at the door and its desire for you has its desire for you and you will rule, should rule over it. God asks questions. He seeks out Cain. He gives him an opportunity to humble himself before him and just remember the whole potter clay thing. Who's the creator and who's the created? It's so good for us to remind ourselves of that. Here we see the great potter, the omniscient uh, God of all things, approaching Cain and seeking him out, just like he did Adam and Eve in the garden. That's amazing. And he does so with love, and he does so with, don't you want this to get fixed? I mean, Cain can see like, wow, this God is pursuing me. He's asking me questions. He's saying it can be well. Wouldn't you think he'd want to just immediately move toward him by faith? These rhetorical questions, there's no answer needed. Cain knows the answer. So he's not surprised. He's not saying like, I had no idea. This is so unfair. I didn't know you were supposed to do this. He's reminding me of like the speeder speeding in the car and the policeman pulls them over and the policeman comes to the window and always says, do you know why I stopped you? No, we're never in that position going, I have no idea. So Cain knows. These are rhetorical questions. And God then appeals. He wants to persuade him. And he uses truth. He says, listen, if you do well, you'll be approved. You'll be accepted. It's not over. It's not too late. Just admit where you're at. Come the right way. Come by faith, as you know. The Septuagint translates this as, if you offer correctly. So here's just the persuasion. And the here, come, just do this the right way. This is persuasion. Then you will be accepted, he's saying. It'll be right. You will be approved. And that's the desire that we want. He is, God is no impatient ogre stomping around. He's like a mean manager going, you stupid little kids, when will you ever learn? When do you ever get it right? He's not shaming or rubbing nose in the mess here. He's just saying, come the right way. Come by faith. I'm here and it'll be okay. What a God, sovereign, creator, all-powerful, perfect, holy, righteous, self-existent, above everything, stooping down to reason with a sinner. In the midst of a hissy fit at that, he takes that time.
Now, faith always agrees with God's thoughts and God's ways, and Cain here will not. He's not operating out of faith. He's operating, in fact, out of his own ideas, followed by his own out-of-control anger. And Romans 8 reminds us the carnal mind displays enmity against God. And that's where Cain is at. He's angry. So God finally, after asking these questions, giving him that opportunity and making appeal, he warns him. He says, look, sin is crouching at the door. Sin here is a personification of sin. Even uh, rabbis in the Jewish faith who interpret this uh, understand this as an internal disposition, like a sin nature. And sin is crouching at the door, waiting for the right opportunity. And when we turn away from God's truth, when we ignore his reality, when we replace that with our own ideas or our own attentions, pounce! Sin dominates and rules over us. And our disposition changes, our emotions kick into gear. We find ourselves reasoning wrongly, etc., etc. And we put our finger up and the world is revolving around us. And so sin has this desire for you to dominate you and dictate us, to steer us towards self-absorption, and self-focus. And God says, you're going to need to rule over it. And here's the problem. We can't. There's no way we can. We understand that from the scripture. There's only one way that it can be come close, and that's by faith. Faith in Jesus Christ, who came and died for that sin, who came as a living Savior and was given as, as a sacrifice for you and I and paid for the penalty of sin. And in his resurrection, he has new life, and he even died and stripped the power of the sin nature within us. When we believe, that becomes a reality that we can start to learn and walk in. <clears throat> So God has made provision for us. He has made provision from the coats of skin so that we can have eternal life and know that we're saved. And he's made this provision even how we can not be dominated by sin. It's simply by faith, always in what God has provided. And that provision is always centered in Jesus Christ. And we can have righteousness in him. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. It's through him. And we attach ourselves to him by faith so that when we believe we are then found in him, we are now seen as righteous, we are secure, we have new life and hope for the future both on earth and in eternity. So what must I do to be saved? This was asked of Paul in Acts 16 by the Philippian jailer. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And whoever believes in him, John 3 says, will not perish but have eternal life. Cain didn't respond to God by faith, but you can. Right now, may we all be convinced. May we see God's reality and say amen. So closing in Hebrews 11, Hebrews 11 says by faith, we understand how the world's were created. The creator is invisible, but his fingerprints are everywhere to be seen. By faith, we approach God through the most excellent sacrifice, the sacrifice of Christ. And being found in him, we have righteousness. We're clothed for eternity, and we can have his approval by faith in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you, as you are the awesome creator, God, how you provided, you provided the death of Christ on our behalf. Thank you, Father. You're the author of all ages. We look back. We see your hand. We see your hand in the creation and in the lives of believers. We look forward, and we can see how we can, are encompassed by hope and future things. So may we find ourselves believing you, being persuaded, expressing ourselves in worship to you by faith, and enjoy our relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, thanks for listening, and always remember, where the Spirit of God is, there is hope.